Welcome to this special episode of Dialogue Out Loud. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. This is an audio recording of a conversation between James C. Jones, an editorial board member at Dialogue, and Dr. Cornell West in February of 2023 in New York City. The interview was conducted to address a particular question that we're asking in a forthcoming issue. Should the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints apologize for its history of racism? Dr. West is a well-known intellectual. He's the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Professor of Philosophy and Christian Practice at Union Theological Seminary and holds the title of Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. He's also taught at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. Since the time of this interview, he's announced his independent candidacy for the U.S. presidency. The conversation does not constitute an endorsement of his candidacy on behalf of Dialogue. Enjoy. One of the first things that I wanted to uh, just ask Dr. West is about your general experience or even your introduction to uh, Mormonism or to our world. Um, I do know that uh, Chasen Peterson was the president of the University of Utah, and there is an intersection of the two of your resumes uh, at Harvard. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that relationship or that encounter was like? Uh, what role did Chasen Peterson have in uh, that particular phase of your life? Well, what is my brother? I want to begin by saluting you. I want people to know that you have been exemplary in terms of what it means to be a person of integrity, courage, love, both open-mindedness, but also taking a stand, you know, with a, with a, a backbone. Uh, uh, so that in that regard, I mean, if you represent the public face of Mormonism, <laughs> Mormon's got a magnificent future. And I tell you, I've been very, very blessed to meet such high-quality Mormon folk. My dear brother David Hollander at, uh, uh, at Harvard, who was a distinguished historian, who's just a magnificent human being in terms of kindness. He was my dear colleague, was always treated me with deep love and respect. And then Brother Chase, I see he was the first Mormon I really met. He was the head of admissions at Harvard. He and he actually hired David Evans, who was black brother from Arkansas with a degree from Princeton, Tennessee State. They together fundamentally transformed the, the multicultural diversity and multiracial diversity at Harvard. They together admitted over 85% of the black folk in the history of Harvard in the few years they were together. Yo. It's unbelievable. Now, it happened in 1970 up until uh, it was right at the moment where Harvard opened up his white supremacist doors and allowed all these folk to come through. And it's fascinating that you would get my magnificent brother Chase, Mormon brother, straight out of Utah, <laughs> and David Evans, straight out of black Arkansas. They worked like hand in glove. It was a beautiful thing, and I was blessed to write the foreword to the memoir of brother Chase Peterson. In fact, when he asked me, I said, man, you don't realize how big an honor this is. And we spent time together when I would go to Utah. We were on radio. We did National Public Radio together for the book and so forth. So that I have been blessed to meet the best of Mormonism with yourself and those two. And my hunch is, you know, there's got to be some much lower quality Mormon <laughs> <laughs> Because that's exactly true with my own 
my own church, Shiloh Baptist Church. You know, we had some of the best people. We had some of the worst people in the church. <laughs> just like I got some of the best and the worst inside of me, you know, so that that's just who we are. You got as human beings made in the image and likeness of, a, of an almighty God. Very much so. But, but I'm so glad you began on this note because I certainly have a certain bias of deep positive orientation toward the Mormons owing to the particular Mormons I have been blessed to get a chance to know you, Chase, and Brother David. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. West, and uh, thank you for you know, clarifying that we have multitudes in us because I think about this a lot, particularly with members of my own faith. I definitely concede that, you know, I see the best of us, I see the worst of us, and sometimes I see more of one than the other, and uh, that makes me either elated or profoundly discouraged or even depressed on occasion. Um, so I appreciate you saying that. That calls me in a little bit and uh, you know, also gives me cause for reflection. So uh, thank you for oh, thank sharing you. that. Thank you. Um, we got some regular debates going on within Mormonism uh, regarding uh, race, regarding a variety of other forms of oppression or bigotry, whatever the case is. One of the hottest uh, debates right now is around the temple and priesthood restrictions that were laid on black people for approximately 130 years that those restrictions were lifted in 1978. So you no, know, a while ago, but nonetheless, we cannot deny the effect of, um, that particular discrimination less than about 1% of the American church of so the American church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is African-American. Even here in Harlem, a uh, neighborhood that's about 40, 45% black, uh, the Harlem congregation is only about 25% black on its best days. And we just barely got a, a black man in the uh, presiding body of this congregation. And I don't remember when the last time we did something like that was. But point is, we have a legacy. We have a history of racism that needs to be dealt with. But uh, one of the first things that a lot of people feel like we should do as a church is corporately confess to our crime of discrimination against black people, to apologize for it. And uh, if you can believe it or not, there is debate on whether or not the church should do that. Now, based on what I've just told you or what you just generally know, how would you feel if the, do you feel actually that the LDS church should corporately confess to the sin of racism? And if the answer is yes or no, why or why not? Well, first, I, I would first look at it as a Christian, which is to say through the lens of the cross. And all of us fall short. And this is true for every religious denomination. It's true for every person, especially uh, those of us who have been so deeply shaped by a nation, an empire. Uh, that is shot through with white supremacist <laughs> legacy, past and present. There's just no doubt about that, beginning with the treatment of indigenous peoples and then enslaved Africans and so forth. We've got anti-Jewish attitudes shot through our Christian denominations so that we, we cannot deny that. So the question becomes, uh, what evil inside of us? It's not a question of just looking at the evil in others. What evil inside of us is operating and what are the conditions under which we want to be changed and transformed? And I would think that repentance and 
apologies are a part of the healing process because all you're doing when you apologize is you are acknowledging that which has been rendered invisible. And yet, even as it's been rendered invisible, there's human beings down there suffering. Black folk have been suffering. Indigenous people suffering and so forth. And we know that, that we are made in the image of God like anybody else with the same status, the same significance, the same sanctity, the same dignity. Uh, uh, you know, I had a wonderful uh, run-in with the brother in Italy. Ah, yeah, uh, Dallin Oaks, right? Yeah, Dallin Oaks. Yeah. He and his loved ones, though, is a wonderful brother. You know, he got a wonderful spirit about him, and he was so open and warm and, and, and welcoming in that sense. And yet all of us know he and I, roughly the same age, we grew up under Jim Crow-like conditions. So how could we not be affected by how we grew up? No matter how committed we are to our own distinctive uh, faith, it's not distinctive because it overlaps in very deep and profound ways. Uh, so that it's just a matter of being candid. I think there's a fear of people apologizing because they feel as if somehow uh, they are being associated with the, the conquerors and the slaveholders and the colonizers and that's solely because of their skin color or skin pigmentation that they somehow are being targeted, not demonized, but targeted in a critical way. And we simply say, look, we, and this is part of the legacy of Martin King and Fannie Lou Hamer, right, that this is a love affair. They, we want to create a context where people can apologize about the legacy and the beneficiaries of white skin privilege as it relates to the vicious legacy of white supremacy, but in such a way that they recognize they're not being uh, tarnished with the brush of the white supremacy of their ancestors. They can choose and go another way, and they have. I mean, I never talked about this with Brother Chase. But Chase and I reveled in each other's humanity and had marvelous times. And his wife and his family, we've had marvelous times. Now, if I were to sit down with Brother Chase and say, now tell me about your granddaddy. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about your granddaddy in relation to Jamal and Letitia and Ray Ray and, and Babra. I don't know what he would say. His granddaddy could be a very extraordinary vanilla brother who fought against white supremacy. But my hunch is... He was deeply shaped by his time, too. And he would say the same to Brother West, tell me about your granddaddy. Oh, I tell you, about my granddaddy, pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who had a loving spirit, who invited white folk into his church at all times, who told me, Cornell, don't you ever, ever hate white people. You hate the sinner, not the sinner. You hate white supremacy without hating white people. That's what I was told. I believe it to this day. That means what? That means that we all are shaped, for better or worse, by those who came before, but we can make choices now. So apology, in some ways, is a weak response because after apology comes some kind of action. Some kind of reparation. Exactly, some kind of action, but this is not quid pro quo. This is the truth of the past, the damage done, and the attempt to repair the damage is done in some way. It's not about money. It's about the soul of a congregation, of a denomination, of a nation, of a people. It's about your soul. It's about my soul. And all of us, our souls fall short. 
I think that's the thing that a lot of our white brothers and sisters uh, overlook. You see, when we call for apologies or reparations, somehow they think that we're looking down on them and, and imposing this definitive judgment on them and condemning them. No, not at all. There's white supremacy inside of black people. There's white supremacy inside of black institutions. And that has to be wrestled with. It's just that the black skin lack of privilege for so long and the white skin privilege for so long are major effects and consequences of the institutions, of the structures, of the attitudes, of the perceptions of too many white supremacists in the making of this nation and country. So thank you, first of all, for saying that an apology is not going to be enough because uh, my next question was going to be, what might this uh, look like, this apology? Because I'm of the opinion that the best apology is changed behavior. Right. And um, what might that behavior look like? Because we have seen examples of corporate confession from, um, you know, some Baptists, some Methodist churches. We've seen it modeled well, what this corporate confession might look like. But um, for the LDS church, um, I can't help but wonder what might an apology look like for us where we have kept black folks out of full fellowship, kept them out of leadership, kept them out of temples, in some cases kept them out of pews. And now we're at this point where even though black people are the most likely demographic in the U.S. to seek religion, 13% of the population, we're still around 1% of the American LDS population. So based on what you've seen in the good examples of the people who have actually done corporate confession, what might this apology or what might a proper restitution, if I can use that word, what might that look like for us, do you think? Well, one, I think that it would be a matter of digging deep into the rich whales of the Mormon tradition and saying that when we excluded precious black people, that was not the best of us. That was not the best of Mormonism. There's another side of Mormonism. We have spiritual and scriptural resources in our tradition that bring critique to bear on white supremacy. We can do that as Mormons. And we can do that in such a way that it's a matter of embrace so that Mormonism looks better and stronger and more loving and more courageous and more true to Jesus and Joseph Smith and all the others. And I'll say this, if Mormonism can attract the magnificent artists like Gladys Knight, one of my favorite singers of all time, then I know, because she's a wise sister <laughs> and she's a great artist and she got something going on inside of her that leads her to that and the same is true for Jack James and his parents and so forth. Something is going on that's important, that's rich, that's deep. And all Mormonism has to do is to say, look, the worst of who we are was at work in our exclusion of these precious black folk made in the image and likeness of God. We're not only sorry, we're going to execute policies in such a way that it accents the best of Mormonism. Sorry, the next question I got is literally a poetry, and it, it leads into what you just said. This is not the best of us, and you're totally right about that, because what I wanted to highlight was just this paradox of us having this past, this history, this legacy, yet us having a theology that is 
in my estimation, profoundly inclusive, profoundly expansive, profoundly radical and revolutionary and affirming. Like, whereas I do see our history and our past, I see whole sections, whole chapters of the Book of Mormon that are so affirming of black people that read like whole treaties or cries of black America that I can't help but wonder how people have missed this the entire time. Like, that was probably one of the greatest victories yet tragedies to me when I first decided to uh, pursue this course was the fact that I could see things other people couldn't simply because I was a black American. I could hear my people's cries in the text. I could hear the best of us. I could hear and see the radical and the revolutionary, the expansive, the robust, the beautiful. And like you just pointed out earlier, Dallin Oaks grew up in Jim Crow. He's a straight white man who grew up in Jim Crow. And pretty much everybody else on his level in church leadership is a white man that grew up in America during Jim Crow. So it's no wonder that I've never had anybody unfold the scriptures to me in a way that affirms what I just shared with you. It's hard for, like, I don't, I don't understand how or why predominantly straight white leadership born in the Jim Crow era would know that or would be able to, and would consequently be able to teach it. But, um, I'm so glad you highlighted that because very, very hard. Well, I, I, I give you a, uh, a fascinating analogy, mm -hmm. which really doesn't hold, but I, I say it to be highly provocative. Uh -huh. One of the greatest of the Africana Christians, close friend of Desmond Tutu was named Bears Nade. He was the head of the council of South African churches. He invited me to come to South Africa underground because it was against the law to come from America, to go from America to uh, South Africa at that time. And I had to be an honorary white in order to get through the airport. And so we were underground with Tutu and Alan Bozak and others. And Bears Nadi, his family was one of the founders of the Africana Brotherhood and Theology. And this is apartheid. This is not just exclusion of organization the way it was with the the Mormons in the past. This was a whole apartheid society across the board with the built-in uh, 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 subjugation of black folk in, in every every sphere of life. And I went to the Africana group, 99% Africana. See, I'm the only black brother in this whole vanilla craft. And I read, and I said, we believe in a God of a persecuted people. We believe in a God of the oppressed that allowed us to move so many miles to migrate. The lot was with us in the most excruciating circumstances and adverse conditions. And the guy jumped up and said, we don't want to hear all of this liberation theology from James Cone and others. I said, I'm reading from the Africana formulation in 1905 against British imperialists. Ooh. I said, this is your history Ooh. because you were a persecuted people. You were oppressed people. Yes, you oppressed others, black folk, but they were fighting the Boer War against the British. I said, liberation theology is not alien to you. The problem is you were too narrow in your tribalism and the best of your tradition is universalism that embraces everybody. So this is not James Cone. This is an Africana theologian in 1903. 
I said, this is the best of your tradition. I'm reading about you. And I believe in the best of your tradition as a Christian. Now, of course, now again, you know, the Mormons are not Afrikaners in the same vicious way, but the white supremacy still been there in a deep way. And I could go back to the best of Mormonism and read about Joseph Smith and Brigham Young tied to a God of the persecuted and subjugated and demeaned and, and, and demonized. I mean, Mormons been one of the most demonized groups in the history of the American empire. You got indigenous peoples, you got black folks, you got Jews. Mormons are on that list, including Abraham Lincoln's and others who wasn't in love with him in his own way. You see, so that the question becomes, well, let's look deep into the wells of the best of Mormonism. You can look deep into the wells of the best of any oppressed people, and you find, lo and behold, especially if they're serious about their belief in an almighty God who looks low and who cares for the old for the orphan and the widow and the fatherless and the motherless and believes in trying to ensure that the good news can be made available all around the world in every corner of the globe because of that good news that you already received. I said, hey, Mitt Romney, you got to go. <laughs> Put in your two years, brother. Marriott, y'all got to. I mean, it is something built into the sense of joy to spread the good news and, and when it's not ugly and coercive in an imperial way, there's nothing wrong with trying to sit down and talk to folk to share the good news in one's own life. That to me is so much of the best of Mormonism. And that is what needs to come back with power and potency for the future of Mormonism to be what I think it can be. Yeah, and you did it again, Dr. West. You just, I mean, you brought up the history of Mormonism. You understood and acknowledged that we too were once an oppressed people Absolutely. as uh, a new religion in the Americas. And I think often about the fact that we were once an oppressed people and think how we got from there to here. Now, like, there's already been a lot of work done about that transition, that kind of institutional code switch right. that Mormonism right. did. Um, but I fully agree with that. Just we really need to dig back into it. And it, what you just said has echoes of uh, the development of the social gospel here in America. I'm thinking a lot about uh, uh, Rauschenbusch in particular and Gladden and these other folks who kind of came in with, you know, the social gospel and how their efforts were trying to recover uh, the best of the Christian tradition and uh, how that started. Basically, at least for Gladden and Rauschenbusch, it was the, um, you know, the suffering of others. Absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. I, I would ask, how do you feel that tradition might be recovered? I mean, I got my thoughts, but like, how does that typically look? Or how do you think that might happen for us in terms of recovering the best of us? You know, I think that every moment in the history of humankind, there's a struggle taking place on the battlefield of the souls of each and every one of us, past and present, with greed, hatred, envy, resentment, uh, insecurity, anxiety, and the countervailing forces against it. We love service to the weak, compassion for the vulnerable, humility, 
integrity, honesty. And those countervailing voices always appear weak and feeble because so much of human history, as Hegel said, it's a slaughterhouse. Like Edward Gibbon said, it's a history of crimes and follies. Uh, uh, and as Christians, we understand the history of the species as so much of the history of domination and subjugation. We try to create those interruption moments, those Kairos moments that can turn us around to push the greed inside of us, the hatred and envy, resentment inside, push that far enough away so we can become new beings in a love of that freedom and love and love and freedom that is distinctive in so many ways of the Christian gospel. And when you look at it that way, you say, then the question becomes, what are the conditions under which the best of the species, the best of Mormonism can flower and flourish? And it's only by means of example. Only by means of example. Emmanuel Kant says examples of the go-kart of judgment. When you find those Mormons who mustered the courage and love to say, Jamal and Letitia are as much a part of the human family as those who have been part of the Mormon family. They have to cut against the grain. Brother Chase was cutting against the grain. Yeah, he was. I, I love the brother. Not just because he cut against the grain, he's just a wonderful brother. But the very fact that he did, that was courage. He knew that the best of Mormonism was something worth fighting for. And I would say the same thing about my own tradition. You see, the black church, the black church got all kind of blindnesses and faults and foibles, and we have to cut against the grain. These days, you got to cut against the, the commodification of religion and the marketization of religion so that success, worldly success and financial success becomes the idols, the dominant idols of our day. No, no. The best of Mormonism says, God is almighty. That dollar might be mighty within the world, but God is all, and God has a calling for us. And the calling is not just our careers. God's got a vocation for us. Vocation is not just a profession. And when you understand what that vocation and calling is, it has a whole lot to do with loving kindness to others and steadfast love to the least of these. That's what Walter Rauschenbusch understood as a Baptist. Now, he's a German Baptist, and I'm a black Baptist, so we got, <laughs> we got overlap, we got differences. Yeah. But if this is true for any, any uh, denomination uh, or any, uh, any religious tradition, I think, actually. So uh, that brings me to kind of uh, wondering, on the subject of leading by example, we have a little bit of a problem in the Mormon church in terms of checks and balances. We don't really have a, uh, there's not really a way for the common man to hold them accountable with the way that the church's power structure is set up. It's very centralized. And uh, even when they give us the ways that we can express um, any kind of dissatisfaction with the way things are, whether it be the church's lack of strategy, policy, or curriculum when it comes to racism, the lack of uh, black people in leadership, or the lack of queer voices who are making these queer policies, um, we don't really have a way to check that. So what might accountability look like for, uh, for an institution like ours that doesn't necessarily have those checks and balances? That's a wonderful question, brother. I, I don't think I'm equipped to answer it because I don't know enough about the internal dynamics of the Mormon church. I know it's fascinating, complicated, and complex, 
with its own rich history, and it's not static. It's changing over time like any tradition. But I don't really know enough. But I'll tell you this, that when I look at other examples, I give you just, just a, probably the greatest Catholic in early modern Europe was Erasmus. Now, in 1559, all of his works are put on the index of prohibited texts. His own church, you see, his own church, because the truths that he was putting forward about the corruption of the clergy and the indulgences in terms of paying people, giving, asking for people's money to get into heaven, the same thing that Martin Luther would make so much of. Erasmus was making the point, but he stayed in the church. Luther made the same points. He said, I got to break. He said, no, Luther, I'm not breaking with you. James Buchanan, another great figure, held on as long as he could, and then later became Presbyterian in Scotland, but he held on for a long time, too. Well, so it is with, with Mormonism. If Mormonism wants to run out some of its high-quality people who want to preserve the best of Mormonism by means of whatever it is, excommunication, marginalization, pushing to the periphery, then you fall into the worst of the other denominations. Mormon is not alone. All these denominations do that. Martin Luther King Jr. was booted out of the National Baptist Convention. That's right. By J.H. Jackson, another black preacher. He had to form his own convention. He's still a Baptist, but he had to form his own convention. Why? Too much prophetic juice is flowing. Martin, you got to go. Now, they all want to claim him. The Catholic Church today, Erasmus is one of our greatest figures in the history of our tradition. You put him on the yeah. index of prohibited. Ah, uh, that's the history of traditions that have to learn their lessons and say we were wrong in what we did. We were wrong in pushing out prophetic voices, you know. A whole wave of folk. It could be queer voices. It could be women's voices. It could be black voices or brown voices when they have a genuine love and concern and are fundamentally committed to the spreading of loving kindness to each and every one of us, and they're still cast as heretics, traitors, uh, public enemy number one, we're falling to the worst of our history. If we learn and say, oh, lo and behold, we've got to re-examine ourselves. We don't have a monopoly on the truth at this moment because we are fallen human beings like everybody else. Chase got a point. How do we keep the vitality of the tradition alive? And you don't keep it alive by ossifying or petrifying it. There's got to be an engagement. There's got to be ways in which the best of the tradition can be held on to as you're beginning to meet new circumstances and new conditions. And when it comes to race, or gender, or sexual orientation, or empire, all of these challenges are very real. The challenges inside of us, in our souls, the challenges outside of us, in our society. Well, if I can just hang on to uh, one thing that you said in there. You talked about the prophetic, when you talked about Erasmus, when you talked about Luther, and... Uh, they needed to speak up, but they often had to speak up in ways that were not, you know, institutionally sanctioned. I fear, but also am a little excited that this might be what the Mormon church has to come to. And not that I think that people are going to have a problem with that, but at the same time, it shouldn't be that way. 
And, you know, might be excommunication, might be marginalization, might be disfellowshipment, just like you said. There are ways that those stories can end. Um, But what I'm hearing, um, because I am familiar with the tradition, I do believe I understand the way the dynamics operate within the tradition. For me as somebody who takes every box of Mormon respectability, nearly every box of Mormon respectability, I don't feel like uh, excommunication is off the table for me. Um, I don't think they are going to do it, but I don't think it's off the table, even though I meet every box, because at some point, to adequately address the things that are going on in Mormonism with regard to race, with regard to gender, with regard to orientation, um, I cannot operate within the same parameters of the institution that set those parameters. And I do fear, I do fear excommunication. Uh, I'm not scared of it. I mean, if that's the worst they can do to me, I'm not scared. But what I'm hearing is that to be prophetic is to engage in an act of courage that could potentially be costly. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Oh, there's always a high cost of discipleship. There's no way around it. We wrestled with this in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, James Baldwin class together last year. You know what I mean? In Bonhoeffer and Baldwin have no monopoly on truth, but my God, they exemplify levels of the love and courage and a willingness to be true to what they understand their calling to be. I mean, what I would say with you is what I would, what is, is what we see in the case of you know Erasmus and others that you don't want to ever allow anybody to excommunicate your relation with God Ooh. and your calling. And that as you decide to remain within the Mormon church with a sense of humility, because you've got much to learn from the best tradition. This is not just you bringing the truth. No, it is you residing. You've been shaped and molded by the Mormon tradition. Yes, sir. And, and, and that's, there's a rich tradition. Uh, but, but with you refusing to ever be excommunicated, excommunicated from your God and your faith, that is a critique of the institution. You see, you're holding on. And, it's, it, and that's something that must always be one possibility, an option among a host of others. But, I mean, in many ways, it's in God's hands in terms of calling you. And it's in the church's hands in terms of are they sensitive enough, courageous enough, open-minded enough to see God working through you, not just to see James, but to see God working through you to make Mormonism the best that it can be. And sometimes the institution makes bad choices. We've known that. Yes, sir. Mormons are not alone. Every religious institution across the board, across nations, has made bad choices in terms of pushing their prophetic figures to the side. Now, prophetic figures can sometimes be wrong, too. That's where our humility comes in, you see. And myself, of course, as a Christocentric Christian, you see, you know, we Baptist, brother, it's uh, love Jesus and the rest is commentary. Yeah. Oh, my God. You see, oh, that's, a, that, that's a wild position. That's why we've got in such deep trouble. And that's why sometimes our congregations can be pure chaos 
Whereas Mormonism was much more tied to hierarchy and order. I can understand that. There's 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 wisdom on both sides. We don't want too much chaos. That, we do say something it. similar though. We say that it all comes down to Jesus Christ or the atonement of Jesus Christ, and everything else is an appendage. Is that right? That's true. Yes. That's what Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I thought we Baptists had something new. <laughs> you said it yourself. The truth can be found in a variety of different Exactly, yeah. but that's really what it is. Now, of course, you know, loving Jesus and being tied to atonement of Jesus is a whole lot. That's why our humility is so exact. There's a lot to unpack in terms of the kind of lives we live and the kind of, kind of fruit we bear. Uh, but sometimes our institutions are too obsessed with the foliage and aren't concerned with the spiritual fruits of love. That's probably one of the most frustrating things to me is um, I was on Twitter the other day and I saw somebody say something along the lines of, you can tell 95% of how faithful a Mormon is based on how they feel about queer people. And uh, that will tell you everything you need to know. And I just remember thinking to myself, that is sad, that is pathetic, that is awful, that you have essentially reduced the entirety of our faith to disliking queer people. And I'm just like, that is a profound example of missing the mark because our theology, and you know, we've said this already, but it's far more expansive, far more robust, far more life-giving than that, than us merely discarding and disliking uh, queer folks. And, uh, but it's amazing. Jesus himself is silent on the issue. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself says over and over and over again, you got to love thy God yep. with everything inside of you and love thy neighbor as thyself. This is, I would argue not, that is saying something though. That's saying a whole lot. And it's embracing of people across gender and race and nation and sexual orientation. So why? Cause how could somebody say 95% of yep. what it's about yep. is just about targeting this particular slice of humanity? Yeah. It, it's a major clash in the yep. fundamental Mormon commitment yep. to the atonement of Jesus and the rest is appendage yes, of what sir. we Baptists would say, love of Jesus and the rest is commentary. Yes, sir. But we have the same thing among you know my fellow Baptists. Many would say the same thing about uh, precious queer brothers and sisters. Yes, sir. That kind of brings me to uh, one of the last things I want to bring up, which is uh, the role of the church when it comes to social ills. Uh, I'll just bring Russian Bush back in here one more time. He says something along the lines of, if, the, if people are suffering because of politics and economy, then the church has to address the human suffering because of politics and the economy. Now, my church personally is uh, notoriously apolitical. We don't speak to a lot of what ails our society, which is, uh, you know, one thing that I do struggle with. Um, but I just wanted to get your feelings on the role of church in addressing uh, social ills, because to claim, as our church does, to be the restored church of the brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish Jesus Christ, who was lynched by... Uh, Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Roman Empire. Right. You know, the state. He was lynched by the state. And, and it, Empire and state. Yes. That's right. And it stands to reason that if we claim to be disciples of that Jesus Christ and be the bearers of the same church that he had restored on the earth today, that we should be the first and we should be the best at addressing society's ills. 
That is my general feeling on the matter. But uh, how do you feel about the role of the church when it comes to addressing uh, society's ills? I've heard you say several things in like your different writings. I listened to you at Proctor, like last year at Proctor, you said something that was like so profound. It's like burned into my memory. But uh, you said two things. But the one I'm thinking of right now is that you cannot drive the money changers out the temple when you're on Pontius Pilate's payroll. Or you can't follow Jesus on <laughs> Pontius Pilate's payroll. Well, it's hard to really be with Moses if you're on Pharaoh's payroll. That's true. But I think human beings can have an integrity in whatever context they find themselves. The question is, how do you work it through? It's like Nathan working Nathan. with the King David. But I would say this. One, that I do not for a minute believe that my precious brothers and sisters in the Mormon church are apolitical. Not at all. Not at all. I believe that they have their own political biases in terms of how they vote, in terms of whether they're open to different peoples in their neighborhoods and in their schools and churches. Of course, the Mormons are in no way hetero, a homogeneous and monolithic. you got a whole lot of different kind of Mormon brothers and sisters. But it's, it's never been apolitical. You couldn't be apolitical. There's no way under the conditions of persecution and oppression that you can act as if you can act as if the nation state doesn't exist. They, they're trying to crush us. Yeah. They're trying to crush us. Finally, we find a place where we can begin to flower and flourish, but we have to preserve the conditions for us flowering and flourishing. That's a political move. You either adjust and accommodate to a powers that be, and you make certain kind of arrangements, allow us to do this and we won't do that. That's a political arrangement. But in addition, when it comes to black people, if my precious brothers and sisters of the Mormon church had one out of three of their males between 18 and 25 incarcerated or on a, a parole, if 40% of their children were living in poverty, if they were dealing with the bombardment of degradation and tax on black beauty and black intelligence and black moral character, and just change that to a tax on Mormon beauty and Mormon intelligence and Mormon moral character, and there have been such attacks in the Mormon past, if that were the condition, there's no way under God's heaven that the Mormon church would say we're apolitical. No way. It's a matter of not just privilege, but of blindness. And that blindness should be shattered by the example of Jesus, shattered by the atonement of Jesus, shattered by the love of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus rightly says we are first and foremost a spiritual people which means we have a way of pushing back indifference, pushing back callousness, pushing back coldness of heart, pushing back meanness of spirit. And when you push those back, there are political consequences. So I don't believe Mormons should be first and foremost political. No, I'm a Christian. I'm not first and foremost political. I'm a follower of Jesus. But to follow Jesus has political consequences. And that's why we're highly suspicious of the world's secular schools of thought and isms and so forth and so on. We're talking about a love and a faith and a hope that cuts through all of these isms. But it does look at the world through the lens of the cross. 
And that's a that's a whole different way of looking at the world. I'm telling you, you can't look at the world through the lens of, you know, Wall Street or Silicon Valley or the Pentagon or even Congress. No, no, you got to look at the world through the lens of some spiritual and moral views of the world. You see, when Brother Mitt Romney says what he says about Sister Green, he's not hating on her. He's simply saying on moral and spiritual grounds, you were wrong, sister, and you in my party. Now, I got my other critiques of Brother Mitt Romney I won't go into now. I've given my love for the brother. But at, at that moment, you can still see the best of Mormonism coming through. And most Republicans won't say a mumbling word. That says something. Yeah. That says something. I want to. I, I do want to give him credit, even give him my strong critiques of him on other on other issues and in that sense i do believe that um the work that you were doing and all of your courage and love and humility and concern about preserving the best of mormonism i hope and pray that the uh the mormon church at the highest levels of its hierarchy learns and listens and heeds to what you actually and the others are trying to say as do I. And I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, pretty much answered all the questions I had here and more. And I think uh, the people listening are going to be incredibly grateful. Oh, but salute you there, brother. Indeed, <laughs> so indeed. indeed. This is Andrew Hall, host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode features brilliant minds from the world of Mormon publishing. One thing we like to do is instead of focusing on a single guest, we like to bring in two or more guests who are working in similar fields and put their works in conversation with each other. Recently, we brought in Michael Austin and Stephen Carter, two of the leading cultural commentators of Mormonism in the 21st century, and had them talk about their recent biographies of two of the great minds of the 20th century, Vardis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen. You can subscribe to all of the Dialogue Journal podcasts by going to dialoguejournal.com and check out all of our past episodes. Dialogue Podcast Network.